the scripture. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. These are the words of God. Please be seated. Just before I start, um, I should let you know, parents of youth, that I just talked with the youth and challenged them to sit in the front half of the sanctuary for the next year. So parents of youth, you got to sit to the front too. Um, we, love, we love our youth and we want them to be engaged in the service, not because they're in church and they need to be engaged in the service, but because we want them to know Jesus. And this is a place where we can do that. So. Um, today we start a teaching series on the book of Revelation. And there's essentially one reason why I'm talking about this book. It's not that I think we're in the end times. We may be, we may not be. People have always thought they're in the end times. I'm teaching on Revelation because it's in the Bible. That means it's part of God's word to his people. God did not give us the Bible, include Revelation, and then say, you can ignore this part. I know it's a little obscure, so don't trouble yourself with it. It's God's word. It has always been God's word for his people. Uh, now, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago. It's God's word, no less than the book of Romans, no less than Psalms or Gospel. So it needs to be preached as part of the whole counsel of God. And it's good for you to open this book and to read it with understanding. So some comments before I begin. First, when we come to this book, we often make one of two errors. Either we ignore it, it's too hard for me to understand, or we become preoccupied with it. What 666 mean? Who or what is the dragon and the beast? What is meant by the seven heads and ten horns? It becomes fodder for prophecy conferences. But we do our best when we read it regularly with the view that somehow reading this book will enable me to walk closer with God. So secondly then, uh, I will not approach this book with one hand on an atlas and another on today's newspaper. There will be no charts, no maps on PowerPoint. In fact, I would say be careful of those who have a revelation figured out. I've got two words for you. Hal Lindsey. He wrote the best-selling books of the 1970s. The late, great planet Earth. Now, don't get me wrong. He loves Christ. That's clear. 
And a man I highly respect came to faith by reading that book. But how Lizzie was wrong in what he said would happen and when. And besides, that's not the point of revolution, revelation, um, which I will comment on in a second. Third, revelation is a book. It drives me crazy how often pastors only preach the letters in chapter 2 and 3 without considering that these chapters form part of a book and are in some way connected with everything that goes before it and after it. So it comes to us as a whole. So we need to read it, and I need to preach it as a whole. Fourth, Revelation is not a manual for end times living. The book was written in its day, and it was written for its day. It's not for us to say, I don't care what it meant 2,000 years ago. I want to know what it says to me today. It's not appropriate to read Revelation or any Bible book, for that matter, with no thought to its original readers and hearers. Revelation resonated with the first century church, and it's in understanding that that it gets to re resonate with us today. And fifth and finally, Revelation is full of symbolism, and we need to be careful how we interpret those symbols. It's a wise, widespread understanding, and I would say misunderstanding, that, for example, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are symbolic. The dragon and the beast are symbolic. References to some numbers, like the 144,000 saints or 666, the number of the beast, are symbolic. But other numbers are not. Three and a half years or a thousand year reign of Christ. We arbitrarily choose this is a symbol and this is not. And whole frameworks of understanding the book are based on this. Um, whether Christ reigned on earth for a thousand years, when there's a rapture of the church, church. And so we need to be careful. And so we want to avoid the two hours, the two errors of, well, it takes about two hours to read, um, or becoming preoccupied with revelation. I won't chart the book or map it out um, but we'll refer to those to whom the book was originally addressed. And I'll be careful with the symbolism of the book. So we know that's what's coming. So let's go. We're paying attention today to the first three verses. And these verses, by the way, were not written by John. They're a sort of prologue to the book. The book proper begins in Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verses 1 to 3 are probably written by students or disciples of John. Um, he's named in the third person at the end of verse 1. The same thing occurs at the end of John's gospel. This is the disciple who has been witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John 21, verse 24. So a word about John and the gospel that lies before. And this is a word about John in the book of Revelation that's, that lies after. But it also tells us what Revelation is. 
that what John saw is reality and is true. Verse 1, the most important five words in the whole book, without which the book doesn't make sense, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of facts, but a person. Not the revelation of events on earth, but heaven's king. Not the revelation of the Antichrist. The word Antichrist doesn't even occur in the book, by the way. It's the revelation of Christ. It's not revelations plural. It's revelation. It's a single revelation of Christ. That's the point of the book. That's why I don't trust those with maps and charts who have revelation all figured out. They're so consumed with outlining facts on earth that they often forget the hero of the story. They should have their eyes fixed on heaven where Jesus is. So here's what Revelation is about. And if you've got a pen, write this down. Use it as a bookmark for Revelation. Revelation, the whole book, is about the triumph of the risen Christ over all the forces of evil. The triumph of the risen Christ over all the forces of evil. This triumph includes judgment of the wicked, both inside and outside the church, the preservation and vindication of the righteous against her enemies, the ultimate destruction of all anti-God world systems, Satan, his demons, death. The word throne occurs 34 times times in the book of Revelation in other words that have to do with reign like rule and reign it's about Jesus kingship it's about Jesus kingship about his absolute and ultimate authority and in a time of evil and persecution it's the knowledge of Jesus ultimate triumph and reign that encourages us to be faithful. The word revelation in the original language is apocalypsis, where we get a word, of course, apocalypse from. The word means unveiling, a revelation of what till now has been hidden. It's like going backstage. And in the Bible, on a couple of occasions at least, we get a glimpse of what's backstage. For example, in the book of Job, we read of the trials of Job, but we've already been given a glimpse backstage to see encounter between God and Satan. Job didn't see this. He never knew about it. But we get a glimpse backstage. Or Peter, James, and John. They go by, off by themselves with Jesus. They've only ever seen Jesus as a man, exceptional man who performed miracles. But, sorry, to all appearances, a normal man. But God raises the curtain just for a second, and they get to see Jesus as he is, his clothes gleaming brilliant white, while the cloud of God's glory envelops him, and a divine voice says, this is my son, but then the curtain drops. And a normal Jesus says, okay, let's go. But now is the revelation. 
Their curtain gets raised and we get full view. We see the spiritual realities that lie behind our actions and events. In the struggle for faithfulness in the hard world, we see that we are part of a bigger picture that portrays angels and demons against each other. Babylon against the church. Christ versus death and Satan. Heaven versus hell. Suddenly our own actions become the actions of a people at war. Every temptation resisted or yielded to is an act of battle. The veil is pulled back and we get to see our role in it. And who we get to see is Jesus. We see the implications of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That he didn't just die for my sin. That I can have a personal relationship with God. We see him from a cosmic perspective. We see his lordship of the church. We see his preservation of the saints. We see authority granted to him from the Father over all things, visible and invisible, invisible, over thrones and rulers and spiritual forces, granted to him by his death. We see the rebellion of Satan and other angels before man was ever created and then being cast to earth. We see Jesus' birth and the spiritual reality behind Herod's attempt to kill him. The dragon, Satan, attempting to kill him. We see his victory over hell, we, uh, over the world, over Satan, over death. We see him as a warrior. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 talks about Jesus as the one who is revealed, original language, apocalypse, revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. And it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to marvel that among all who have believed because our testimony was believed. This we see in Revelation. We see more clearly the kingdom of darkness from which we have been delivered. We see him also as king, as judge. We see the glory of heaven. Jesus is much more than the gentle shepherd. And we sing it, but do we really want the king of heaven to come now as king? You alone, our Savior, show the world your love absolutely. We are children of your mercy, rescue for your glory, absolutely. But not only rescue for the kind of glory that makes the world think better of him. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and people and nation. He died to reconcile us to God, we're children of his mercy, but also that he could judge the earth with terrible judgments. Rescue for your glory means far more than I at least think about when I sing. Let your glory reign, shining like the day, is both better and more terrible than I can imagine. So the book of 
revelation, adds some context to that song that gives me pause. Revelation reveals a Jesus we only get hints of in the New Testament. Notice the chain of communication of the revelation. God gave the revelation of Jesus to Jesus, who sent his angel to John, who wrote it down for the servants of God. So in other words, God said to Jesus, I want my people to know this side of you. So Jesus delivered it to his angel. And after the letters in chapters 2 and 3, we see an angel as a primary medium for the revelation. Um, you can write this down if you want. We don't need it now. But Revelation 5 verse 5. Wrong screen. Yes, 5 verse 5. 10 verse 9. 17 verse 1, 19 verse 9, 21 verse 9, and 22 verse 1. All of these verses talk about the angel in communication with John. And then the angel passed it on to John, who in verse 2 bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And John then passed it on to God's people, his servants. Verse 1, his servants then, the seven churches to whom the letter are addressed, and his servants always, and his servants now. And we have two roles to play in reading this book. First, we are to know the things that must soon take place. This word soon, the description and judgment of, uh, sorry, this the description and the judgment or favor given to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 are obviously soon, written in his day, for his day. The ruin and reign of Christ and God, the warfare of the enemy of God against his people is both soon and never-ending. But these events have their culmination in the end of history, which is also called soon. So 2 Peter 3 verse 4 says that people will say, where is the coming of Christ? Seems to me that things carry on just as they always did. But Peter says that no, heaven and earth are being kept till judgment on the day of the Lord. And then he says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish and that all should reach repentance. So, by the way, a day like a thousand years is not some key to unlocking the timing of history. It's just a way of saying that soon being something different to God, who exists unbound by time, so the things that takes place soon means soon, always, and will come to an end in God's time. The point is, be ready. Beginning of the end of history could happen anytime. Are you ready? Have you given yourself to the king? Have you bowed the knee to him? So think for a second. What in your life is competing with Christ 
for the throne. What in your life is competing with Christ for the throne? Maybe it's an obsession with people not making fun of you or thinking badly of you for any reason. I remember as a tween um, being asked if I like a certain song, whether it's on the radio at that time. Um, I remember the song. It was Time by Alan Parsons Project. And I like that song. Uh, most of you hadn't heard it. Shoot. Great song. I hemmed and hawed because I didn't know whether I was supposed to like the song or not. What if I did like it and a friend who asked me didn't like it? And to have him think badly of me for liking the wrong song was the worst thing ever. You know what? Every time I hear that song, it's on my iPod, I hear it quite a bit. Every time I hear that song, I think back to when I was a tween and my friend asked me that question. Now, for starters, it was ridiculous to think that our friendship, depending on what music I liked and didn't like, but I didn't know then, but I know now, it was a worship issue. I worshiped my likability, but not God. And maybe that's what sits on the throne of your heart. Maybe it's work. Works makes you feel useful. Maybe you want to be known as a hard worker. That if they need something done, they can always ask you. Maybe it's marriage. A spouse is the one thing lacking. And if you are married, you feel complete. Maybe it's being single. You think you've made a mistake. If you went back to being single, everything would be better. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's money. Maybe, maybe it's the church. Maybe it's leadership. Maybe it's looking young. Maybe it's, it's looking in style. Maybe it's having children. But what is it? None of this will last. None of this is worth centering your life around. Only Jesus is. And he will come back. Anytime. He will come back soon. And are you ready for that? But second, those who keep of the words, uh, keep the words of the book are blessed. There are seven beatitudes. Uh, blessed are passages in Revelation. Um, seven is a significant number in Revelation. Seven is a sevenfold spirit, the seven churches, seven trumpet bowls, etc. But we're blessed if we keep this book. How do you keep a book? You keep it by obeying its calls to faithfulness and perseverance despite persecution, despite all the attacks of evil, faithful unto death. You keep it by submitting to the absolute authority of Jesus, trusting that as we side with him, he sides with us. And his, he's doing his battle, at least in part, for us. You don't keep this book 
by figuring it out. You don't keep this book by having maps and charts unless it's a chart of outlining the frequency of calls that we be faithful. 2 verse 10, be faithful. 2 verse 25, hold fast. 6 verse 11, wait a little longer. Imagine betting with your friends halfway through a game on a hockey team. And the, the team that you want to bet for is behind 6 nothing at the half. But say the game was PVR'd and you know how it would end. What team would you bet on? Would you bet on the team that at halftime looked like it was a clear winner? Or would you bet on the team that you knew was going to win the game? That's why God wanted us to have this revelation of Christ. Because knowing the kingship of Jesus and his absolute victory inspires perseverance. It spurs faithfulness. It fires up one's allegiance. And the seven churches of the first century faced difficulties and dangers from both those within the church and those without. The church since then has been persecuted from within and without. And Christians today are the single most persecuted people group facing atrocities and prison and death. On the back of your bulletin, on the payer page, you will see an update from Nigeria and a group called the Boko Haram, which was a, uh, is a fundamentalist, fundamentalist Islam group. And you see Christians being stripped of all they own, their homes being burned, their churches being attacked. This is the world we live in today. I forget the, the date. These, persecu uh, these persecuted church come from within last week or two. So this just happened. That's the church. And for them, a picture of Jesus as the winner enables them to be fully devoted to their faith, to Christ, even unto death. I'm not sure that we get a sense of that. We live pretty rich and comfortably. And my greatest spiritual problem is, God, help me find a parking spot or something. But when we hold on to the ultimate victory of Jesus, we win. Those who keep this book close to heart and live for King Jesus are blessed because while being in the thick of battle all throughout this book, citizenship is the city of God with the Father and the victorious Son is how the story of the faithful ends. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ with whom those who are faithful to the end get to dwell forever. This is the context of the book of Revelation. So, when you are pressured or tempted to not give your full allegiance to Jesus, what will you do? When something else vies to the, for the throne of our hearts, 
where will you stand? When things pull your eyes from the Jesus of Revelation, how will you pull your eyes back? I once heard someone pray, Jesus, be the great distraction in our lives. Instead of things distracting us from Jesus and looking at other things, we look from other things and keep getting our focus fixed on Jesus. We look to Jesus. Let us look to Jesus. And as we study this book, let us look to Jesus. And always, let's pray. Lord, you are the God of heaven and earth, the God of this world, God of events in this world. And again, it's good for us just to be reminded of that. All things are under your feet. All things will be presented to you. and You will then present them to your Father. Please keep us faithful to the end. It's not persecution so much as comfort that leads us away. But keep us faithful. Keep our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and across the world faithful. Because to you belongs all the glory and praise and power and wisdom forever, forever.